0: Well, good morning. If you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to Romans chapter 6. We're going to be looking... This morning at uh, verses 1 through 14. Uh, If you didn't bring your Bible, uh, you can also use the Pew Bible. It's on page 942 and 43. If you brought your own Bible, I don't know what page it is on. It's on uh, 1420 and mine. Uh, It's also printed for you in your bulletin. There are lots of ways that you can follow along uh, this morning if you'd like to do that. I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's great to have you with us. My name is Sean Slate. I'm the pastor here, and we are so glad that you're with us because we. We know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning. For instance, you could be avoiding sports radio. Uh, you could be wondering what the University of Tennessee did to Jesus. Uh, you know, uh, you, you could be trying to put out the fire uh, of the couches you burned last night. Or maybe some of you first years are looking to transfer schools. But... Really glad you're here. Uh, we're thankful uh, to be here. Thank you for coming. Welcome to Redeemer. What is uh, Redeemer? Redeemer is a church. And what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God, He's the Messiah. And He has entered the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week we gather together uh, to worship him and to learn to rest in the love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in that love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in community and we go for hikes and walks and we go on boat rides and we read the Bible and we pray together to remind each other of that great love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in his love and as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight together together in service so that together, we might reflect the love of God to our family and to our friends and to our neighbors here in Urban and University Knoxville. And our hope is that in some way it will spread out to the entire world. That's who we are, people who are trying to learn how to love God, we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that here at the end of ordinary time during this semester, this fall semester, what we're gonna do is we're gonna think about the fruit of the Spirit. And so over the next couple weeks, uh, we're gonna do some introductory sermons to prepare us to get into the fruit of the Spirit. But the reason that I want us to consider this topic of the fruit of the Spirit is because often here at Redeemer, we talk about Uh, resting, reminding, and reflecting. And one of my fears for us is that as we talk about reflecting, many of you immediately begin to think about doing, right? You immediately begin to thinking thinking about doing things like serving the poor, doing nice things, going on mission trips, all of which are really great. uh, But there is more to it than that. It's not just doing good things. We also have to ask the question, how do we do them? Who are we becoming? We've got to begin asking ourselves this deep question. Are our lives being filled up more and more with things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control? Because it's not enough just to do sort of good deeds. It also matters how we do them. And all of that is going to flow out of who we are in Jesus. And so uh, that's what I want us to think about this morning who we are, the fruit of our union with Christ. So, with that in mind, let's look together at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Do you pray with me now for the teaching of it? Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you are a God who is not hidden, nor are you silent, but you are a God who delights to be known and you have made yourself known in your word, by your spirit, and ultimately in the person and work of Jesus. And so over these next few moments, as we attend unto your word, we ask that you would attend unto us and that you would show us lovely things of you and you would cultivate your life, the fruit of your spirit within us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it seems to me that from the moment that you were born and given a name, You spend the rest of your life understanding yourself in light of that name. And so every time I hear the word Sean Slate, I perk up and I think, hey, that's me. Uh, I'm Sean Slate, right? And every time you might hear those words, Sean Slate, an image is also conjured up in your own mind. And you might think differently about Sean Slate than I think about Sean Slate. But those words, they still represent me. And for me, when I hear those words, I think about who I am and where I've come from. I think about the Slates who came over with the Massachusetts Bay Colony and how they made their way south down to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and how they farmed tobacco. I'm reminded that they were Quakers. I think of my grandmother and I think of my grandfather, uh, Mary and Austin, for whom my daughter Mary Austin is named. I think of my mom. I think of my dad. I think of my sister, whose son is named Slate. And I think about my name, and it roots me in this world. And my name it also connects me to other people. And then. That name also shapes me and it reminds me of the privileges from which I've come and how because of them, I am the man that I am today. And I'm reminded, right, that slates love certain things. I mean, slates love the Clemson Tigers. Uh, Slates uh, love sports. Slates value education. Uh, Slates uh, are religious. My grandfather uh, was a monk, and my grandmother uh, served as a nurse in a monastery. And then they got married, and uh, they left their 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 orders, but uh, uh, (laughs) but remained religious nonetheless. Uh, And then, um, you know. uh, and the slates, we look a certain way. We have more nose than some of you. Uh, we have an eyebrow that we have to weed eat, and then uh, we've got these weird toes, these thumb toes that, you know, help us climb trees or something. Uh, and then, uh, but then I think about one of my best friends, a guy named Anthony Bradley, who's an African American, and he has a little bit different experience with his name. Because though his name does some of the same things that it does for me, it roots him in a place and it roots him in a people. His name also reminds him from where he came and he came from the Bradley plantation in Alabama and therefore his family has been named the Bradleys. And though his name roots him in this place, it also roots him in his enslavement, his family's enslavement. And that name reminds him that his people had been stripped of their identity and then been redefined by their master, And that name, right, has shaped the way he lives in this world. It shaped the way he understands himself. It shapes the way he sees his place in America and whether or not he belongs here or doesn't belong here. And then it moved his family to do certain things. And one of the things that moved their family to do was to take all their money, pull it together, and to buy the old Bradley plantation so that they could now own the place that had once owned them. So here's my point. Your name is important, your name defines you, it shapes you, it shapes your place in the world, and it then directs the way you live in it. And the reason that I think that this is important is because who you are shapes what you do. And so this semester, as we think about the fruit of the Spirit, is it important to remember that the fruit of God's Spirit flows out of who we are in Jesus? And over the next few weeks, the children who you saw just with great joy getting out of this place, uh, they're back there learning a song that has these lyrics apples don't grow on pear trees, bananas don't grow on plum trees. And here's the point the fruit of our lives flows out of who we are. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. Who are we? Who are you? That's it. That's that's it. I learned from Matt Howell last week. One point that we're going to think about. Who are you? And to think about who we are, I'm going to slow roll this out and we're going to begin at the end and then work ourselves back. I want you to notice verse 14. You are not under law, but under grace. And I think that this is very, very important because so often when we think about Christianity, we think about Christianity as a means by which we earn God's favor. And we think of Christianity as this list of do's and don'ts and that Christianity is fundamentally about obeying the law of God in order to get him off of our backs. Or maybe it's a a list of things that we do to pay him back for loving us or to get the things that we really want from him. But either way, often when we think think of Christianity, it is merely a transaction with God to get him to leave us alone or to get him to do what we want him to do. And so what that means for us is that we primarily understand ourselves as doers, as uh, provers, as earners. We fundamentally understand ourselves as those who are under the law. But God tells us, That is not the way he works. The way of God is the way of grace, meaning that Christianity is not a law that you must keep, but it is a gift that you are freed to receive. Christianity is primarily about God and what he has done before it's ever about anything you will do. And therefore, the role of the Christian is to receive and to rest in the love that God already has for us in Jesus. And this is what sparks the big question that you see in verse 1 What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And I'm sure many of you have asked this question in some form, maybe not exactly like verse 1, but maybe you've asked the question I mean, what's the point in being good? if I'm already saved? What's the point of obeying if Jesus has already died for our sins? And I want you to notice Paul's response in verse two. He says, by no means. Essentially, he's saying, are you crazy? How could it ever be? And he goes on, how can he who died to sin still live in it? And so essentially what Paul is saying is this. He's saying, look, are you serious? By asking this question, you are fundamentally misunderstanding who you are. And so who are you? Well, notice in verse five, you are united to Jesus. Nine times in these verses, Paul tells us that you are either in Jesus or you are with Jesus. And this is huge because Paul is saying that in Jesus, verse 2, you have died to sin. And therefore, in Jesus, verse 11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so what Paul is telling us is this. He's saying, look, that the life of Jesus is the life that now defines you. And this is very important for us because it is easy for us to define ourselves by our failures, And it is easy for others of us to define ourselves by our successes. But Christians do not understand themselves according to their success or their failure. We understand ourselves in light of Jesus. We are his. And what is true of him by faith is now true of us. Now, this does not mean that we never sin, nor does it mean that we never feel its pull or its power. But what it does mean is that we are no longer enslaved by it. Or to put it another way, we are no longer citizens of the kingdom of sin, but we have been delivered to become citizens of the kingdom of God. And the reign of that kingdom is the rule of grace. But before we work out what that all might look like, I want you to see how Paul understands this concept of sin. Because in the Bible, sin is not so much the individual bad things that we do or those little mistakes that we make. Sin really is this deep, Power that rejects God. It is this desire for autonomy, a desire to live for yourself and to define yourself apart from him. It is that evolutionary compulsion for the strong to survive and the weak to be destroyed. And it is the perversion of all of God's good things. There's a great little book by Al Walters called Creation Regained. And in that book, he describes sin as a parasite upon God's good creation that is sucking the life that God has given to the world and it is perverting and abusing all of God's good things in order to feed itself. And then as you read this passage, Paul begins to personify this idea of sin in verses one and two. He describes it as something in which we walk. It's, it's like the air that we breathe or if you were a fish, It's like the water you swim in. It's the ecosystem in which we dwell. And then in verses six and seven, he describes sin as a slave master uh, that abuses us, right? And holds us down from being who we are and from being free. And then in verses nine, 10 and 12, he describes it as a king that reigns and seeks to have dominion over everything. And therefore in verse 13, he says, humanity offers itself to sin. We offer ourselves as instruments or as tools or as weapons for service to sin. And what I want you to see here is that sin is actually deep, that sin is actually powerful, that sin is actually real. And this is important because as we live uh, in a society that's becoming more and more secular, we really don't believe that sin exists. We really don't believe that it's a big deal. And if we do, uh, it's just sort of an honest mistake or it's because of lack of education or something like that. But the testimony of the Bible, and the testimony of history, and the testimony of humanity... Is that sin runs straight and deep through every human heart? And one of the things that gets really complicated is that when sinful humanity gathers together in groups, we just sort of multiply the effects. And sin then becomes this force, this power that impacts systems and societies and cultures and institutions. And it's not just a few little mistakes here or there, but it is this big darkness whose shadow gets cast upon everything. And though it's hard to explain, even like Augustine, when he tried to describe sin, he just said, it's like a nothing. It makes no sense. It is a perversion of God's goodness But somehow that power of sin, that autonomy from God becomes this dark cloud that casts its shadow over everything. And it lies behind your lusts. It lies behind your lies. It's behind your greed. It's behind your gluttony. And it looms large and its darkness rises up. And it begins to control us and confuse us. And you see it in big events like the Rwandan genocide. You see it in huge events like the Yugoslavian genocide. You see it in things like the German Holocaust. You see it in things like the American Jim Crow. And it runs deep, right? Not just in these little events, but then it runs deep through our political systems, things like communism and democratic communities. And it runs deep through our economic system like socialism and capitalism. And then it demands that we would be loyal to it. And it becomes the air that we breathe and the air by which, by which we must live. I don't know if any of you have seen this show, Stranger Things, uh, season three. Uh, If you haven't seen it yet and you want no spoilers, you might want to go get a bagel. You might want to go to the bathroom. Five, four, three, two, and one. All right. So uh, in Stranger Things, uh, season three, the monster is the mind flay. And it's this amazing thing because the mind flay is actually this one big, entity. It's this one big, powerful monster that can break itself down into many different individual expressions. And it is powerful. And it has this desire to take over everything and to rule and reign over all of creation. And you might remember that the mind play then begins to take over people, people who are seemingly just going about their business, living their lives. They then get overwhelmed by it. They get attacked by it. And then they begin to walk in its power and serve its desires. And they, Then begin to understand themselves in light of him. Now, if you remember towards the end of Stranger Things 3, you might remember Billy. Billy has been taken over by the mind flay. He's under its power. He's sort of forgotten who he is. He's ruled and he's controlled by this monster. And you might remember at the end in the Star Court Mall, in service to the monster, Billy brings Eleven to the monster. And as 11 is crying and Billy's choking her and presenting her to the monster, 11 looks up into Billy's dead eyes and she looks deep into his soul and she's invited in. And she sees him as a little child playing on the beach with his mother. And she sees him riding the waves in on the little boogie board and 11 looks at him and she says, seven the wave was seven feet and she wore a hat with a blue ribbon and a long dress with a blue and red flower and yellow sandals and she was pretty. She was really, really pretty and you were loved and you were happy. It was this beautiful moment in this series where Eleven is reminding Billy of who he is. Where, where she's reminding him that there was a time when he was loved by his mother, that there was a time when there was beauty and goodness in the world, where he's reminded that death does not have to win. And as he's reminded of who he is, you see his eyes uh, that were dead come to life. And he begins to defend 11. And that's what Paul is saying about us. He's saying, you are loved, by your heavenly father, darkness does not have to win. He has entered into this world to defeat it on your behalf. And therefore he says in verse 14, sin no longer has dominion over you and why? Because Jesus has brought you out from the dominion of darkness. He's brought you out from the dominion of sin. And he's brought you into the realm of grace, into the realm of Jesus. And this is why the question of verse 1 makes no sense. How could you continue in sin? You have been delivered from it. You are freed from it. You no longer walk in it. You no longer live in it. You are dead to it. You've been raised to new life in Jesus. It's as if a fish had been given lungs and put on the land. It does not need to go to the water to breathe. It now breathes this new air. And what are you saying? You no longer belong to sin. That is not who you are. Therefore, verse 11 consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now the difficulty I think with this passage is if any of you are like me, you still often feel very alive to sin. It's what you've known, it's what you've served and it's what you do. But Paul is saying this to us. You must not let your past dictate your present. You must not let your feelings dictate what is true. And you must begin to differentiate what you feel and who you are. Martin Lloyd Jones, an old pastor, talked about it this way. He said, The American slave lived under the fear and the trauma. Of their masters for years. It's what they knew. It's who they had to obey. And yet one day they were set free. And on that day when they were set free, uh, I guess, hypothetically, they no longer had uh, to belong. They no longer belonged to their masters and they no longer had to obey their masters. But often that man or that woman who had been freed would walk down the street and they would see their old master And when they saw their old master, they felt enslaved again. And they felt responsible to their old master. And they felt like they had to serve their old master once again, even though they'd been set free. And that is how trauma works in us, right? That is what happens to the abused and to the traumatized. And so often we ask those who've been abused, why didn't you just leave? Why did you stay? Well, those who have been abused, if you've ever worked or if you've ever been abused, what you know is that you feel responsible to your abuser. And when you see them, you feel like you have to go back to them. But the reality is you don't. The reality is that you have been set free. You do not belong to the old man. You do not belong to your abuser. You do not belong to sin You have been set free by the love of Jesus and you are united to his beautiful life. And he goes on to say, you have been baptized. You have died. You have been resurrected. You are new men and women in Jesus and you have been brought into a new world. In verse three, he says, you've been baptized into Christ Jesus. You've been baptized into his death. You have been buried with him in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, many of you, I'm sure, have been around Christianity for a while and you know this ceremony of baptism where we pour water on the head of a new believer, we pour water upon the uh, heads of children of believers. And by doing so, what we're doing is we are publicly marking them out as those who belong to God. And it's very important, if you notice in this text, that baptism is not a sign of the things that we have done Nor is it a sign that we believe, nor is it a sign that we trust in Christ. But baptism is fundamentally, notice in the text, it is fundamentally a sign of what God has done for us. The theologian Sinclair Ferguson says that baptism is not so much a symbol of our faith as it is a call to faith. It is God's gift to us that says, Look at Jesus. Look at his death. Look at his resurrection. It is yours. And when he died, you died. When he rose, you rose. That is who you are in Jesus. And just as Jesus is a son of God, you and I are now sons and daughters of God. And therefore we are set apart to walk in his ways and to give ourselves to him because we are his children who in Christ have died and have been risen. And we walk in his power. We walk in his life by faith. And therefore, verse 11, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus because it is your baptism that tells you who you are. And just to repeat it, who are you? Verse five, you're united to Jesus in his death. Who are you? Verse five, you have been united with him in his resurrection. Who are you? Verse six, you have died. Verse seven, you've been set free. Verse eight, you will live with him. Verse nine, you've been made alive. You've been resurrected to God. And therefore he is saying, present yourself to God and not to sin. Because Jesus is Is the realm in which you now walk. Jesus is now the air that you breathe, the life that you live, the master you serve. It is no longer sin, but it is Jesus who has died for you and has risen from the dead on your behalf, who is with you and giving you his life. And so here's the point baptism is not only telling you, it's not merely telling you that you've received forgiveness, it is telling you that you have received Jesus, all of him. You've received his death. You've received his resurrection. You've received his sonship. You've received his glory. You have received him. And therefore, baptism serves as an identity marker for us, telling us who we are, that we are his. And this is important because for most of us, uh, Christianity... Uh, is really just a part of what it means to be Southern. For many of us, Christianity is just what it means to be kind of nice. Christianity is just sort of good for society, right? It's just something that we do, a little prayer here, a few nice things there, but all in moderation. And so for many of us, Christianity is like Mary Poppins' Christianity, a spoonful of sugar, it helps the medicine go down. And for many of us, a spoonful of Christianity helps life go well. But sadly, often a little bit of Christianity is the thing that inoculates us from true Christianity. I don't know if you know this or not, but there is a huge hepatitis A outbreak in Knoxville right now. There are over 1,000 active cases of hepatitis A in our city. If you have not been vaccinated, you need to get vaccinated. If you don't wash your hands, you should start washing your hands, right? Like, this is very important. You do not want it. But anyway, so, uh, so we invited the health department up to the church this week for food in the fort to give out free vaccinations to our neighbors. And if you know how a vaccine works, most vaccines work this way, that you are sort of given a low-grade version of the disease so that you don't catch the real thing. And it seems to me many of us have been inoculated to Christianity, <laughs> We've gotten a low dose of it, but it keeps it from like becoming full blown. And we become comfortable in this light Christianity and we haven't caught the real thing. And I think most of us just see Jesus as an addition to our lives, but we pursue all the things that we think really matter. And then we throw Jesus on top of it and we think we'll be fine. And so like Jack Johnson says, like you think singing on Sunday is gonna save your soul now that Saturday is through. If we can just throw Jesus onto it, everything will be okay. But Christianity isn't about being okay. Christianity isn't about being fine. Christianity is about Jesus. It is about being in Christ. And out of him, everything else flows. And so what Paul is saying to us is, remember who you are. You are in Jesus. You are united to him in his death. You are united to him in his life. You are united to him in his resurrection. And therefore you must live in him. And in him, the promise he gives you is that you will bear much fruit. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bear much fruit in our lives, that we would see ourselves in you as your loved children. Would your spirit empower us and strengthen us to give ourselves in great service to you with great joy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.